Lord, we, uh, we ask now for your uh, illuminating work to make your word to come alive in us. We uh, invite the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, his ability to give us understanding, his ability to convict us, his ability to encourage us, his ability to help us to see new things that we, we hadn't seen before. And uh, we, we ask these things all that uh, we might be encouraged in this season, that we might be transformed more to the image of Christ, and, and that we might go away today having truly heard from you. Uh, so meet us where we're at today, work in each heart, and uh, cause us to, um, to know you more through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So what would your Christmas be like without Christmas music? Can you even imagine that? Um, do you like Christmas music? You like Christmas music? Okay. Does your Christmas music play a special role in your Christmas celebration? Uh-huh. Um, do you have rules about when Christmas music is allowed to start and when it's not? And you break those rules and... You do that. Um, I, I said that first service. Someone came up to me and said, we start listening to Christmas music in July. I'm like, July? Why do you do that? He said, well, it's so hot. It kind of gives you something to look forward to. And I thought, okay, well, that works for you. Um, so uh, j- just to kind of let you in uh, into our home a little bit, um, our, we, we love Christmas music. I love Christmas music. It's a very important part of our uh, season, as I know it is for many of you. Um, when I got married, I inherited something called the brown tape in the Boyd family. The brown tape is a brown cassette tape filled with Christmas music, and that's what they would play every year. Um, if you don't know what a cassette tape is, ask your parents. They'll help you with that, okay? When music was hopelessly in bondage to linearity back in the days before digital music. Um, uh, so that's one, and, and we, we wake up, for, for years, we wake up our kids to Christmas morning to what we call the Christmas drum song. Uh, that's what we called it when they were little. It's uh, Sailor's Light of the Stable, which is a really cool... Uh, version and, and then uh, if if you come by the house and you see the walls uh, shaking, it's probably because uh, me and Alan are listening to a little Trans Siberian Orchestra or what we affectionately call in our family Christmas with electric guitars. So um, that's what we do and we enjoy that. And um, but but probably my my most favorite Christmas song is "Hark the Herald Angels Sing," and maybe that's maybe that's one of your favorites. I think the older I get as a Christian, of course I've known that my whole life, like many of you have. But the older I get as a Christian, you, you start to realize there's some really good stuff in this song. It's full of theology. It's full of the significance of the Christmas season. Um, but do you know the story behind the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Do you know that? Can I tell you the story? It's fascinating. So in, 19, uh, excuse me, in 1738 in England a young man named Charles Wesley was converted to Christ. Many of you have heard of uh, Charles Wesley. Uh, His brother, John Wesley, and George Whitfield, the great preacher, um, they were all friends, of course, and and went through school at the same time. And um, those three men would start what became later known as the Methodist Church. Now, Methodism in that day was really a movement to bring the church back to the fundamentals of biblical Christianity where the established church had kind of gone off the, the narrow road there. 
So Wesley was a part of that movement. So he's converted in 1738. And it was really interesting. God gifted Charles with an incredible poetic ability. His dad was actually a poet also. His daughter and uh, some of his other children were, were gifted in that way. But everybody agrees Charles had a special gift. This man, get, get this, in the span of his life, he wrote 9,000 poems. 6,000 of those 9,000 were hymns for the church, making him the man who has written the most hymns for the church in all of history. Uh, does anybody know who topped him? Fanny Crosby. And she came up with um, 8,000 hymns. So uh, Miss Crosby beats Mr. Wesley in terms of number of hymns. But nonetheless, uh, you, and you know some of these hymns, right? Christ the Lord is risen today. You know that one. Rejoice the Lord is King. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. You, you know these, these tunes and these songs. They're some of our favorites. And uh, the one that you, you may know well, uh, and you, maybe you know a bit of the background, on the occasion of his conversion, uh, subsequent to that time, he picked up his pen and wrote one of the most beautiful hymns in all of church history that goes like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? And uh, that line that we all love from that hymn uh, was particularly how he uh, documented his conversion. My chains fell off and my heart was finally free. So that, that's Wesley. You know him through his hymns, uh, one of the founders of, of the Methodist movement. Um, but, but something you may not know is about a year and a half following his conversion, so we're in 1739, around Christmas time of 1739, he wrote a hymn entitled, you ready for this? Hymn for Christmas Day. I think he was still working on titles back then. But anyway, you get the idea. It's very functional. And, uh, and you can see that. If you want to see this hymn, flip your sermon outline over. And on the left-hand column of the back of your sermon outline is that poem, Hymn for Christmas Day. Now, if you look at the opening line, it goes like this. Hark how all the welkin rings. And we say, I've never heard this before. That's unfamiliar to us. Welkin is an old English term for what? for sky, for heavens. And, and to ring the welkins back in the 18th century meant a celebration, a song, um, uh, jubilant singing. And so when he's saying, uh, hark how all the welkin rings, what he's saying is the heavens are erupting in song. You say, well, why would the heavens be erupting in song? Answer, because there are a multitude of angels singing to the shepherds. Okay, So that's how he started it. Um, uh, with that old that old terminology there. Well, thankfully, several years later, his good friend George Whitfield, the preacher, changed the opening line to something that we could all understand. Hark, the herald angels sing, and thus we know the title from that point on. Later on, the opening stanza of the first verse was added to the end of each of the verses into the familiar version we know today. There were a couple more tweaks that happened in the 20th century leading to uh, the common present form that we see today. Now, what you may not know is that his song originally had five verses to it, not the three that we're used to singing. And you, you notice that on the back of your sermon outline there. Most of us are only familiar with the first three, and we typically sing those at Christmas time. But as you can see, those additional two verses are significant because the whole song actually tells a story. Interesting, as many hymns often did. Now, so, so with that in mind, 
rewind this week back to earlier this week. Pastor Keith is, I'm working on my message. I'm working on my sermon for this Sunday. Um, and, and I'm, I'm working on a message called, why did Christ come at Christmas? And I'm, I'm making an outline all this. And of course, as I'm studying, as I'm doing my, my sermon prep, what am I doing? Of course, I'm listening to Christmas music, right? Hark the Herald Angels Sing comes on, uh, the Getty version, which is killer if you haven't heard that, uh, with the fiddle and some other stuff. And I'm listening to that, and I kind of stop what I was doing, and I'm getting into the song, and I'm starting to listen to the lyrics, and I realize that what I'm hearing in the verses of Hark the Herald Angels Sing is matching my sermon outline. And I'm like, Wesley stole my idea. I mean, look at... (laughs) And then I realized I'm actually stealing Wesley's idea because obviously he wrote it before I did. And, and so thus it joined together what I was going to do this Sunday with this hymn. And here we go. What I'm going to try to do is answer the question for you, why did Jesus come at Christmas? And I want to illustrate it with this song. Okay? And, and my goal is that whenever you hear or sing this song, again, that you will never hear it or sing it in the same way. Because I think that what is here as we unpack scriptural texts that explain why Jesus came, you will see the brilliance and beauty and and robust theology that Wesley has built into the song. Uh, Dr. Michael Hahn, who is the Distinguished Professor of Church Music at the Perkins School of Theology up at SMU in Dallas, the Southern Methodist University, he writes this of Wesley's song. Listen to this. It provides a, quote, dense theological interpretation of the incarnation. And I'm here to tell you that's why I love this song, because it is dense theology. And the best songs are songs that have dense theology. So why did Jesus come at Christmas? We're going to illustrate those truths through Mr. Wesley's song, And here's what I love about this. Wesley reminded me this week as I was preparing my message that these are not just truths to remember. They're not just truths to tell to your neighbors. They're not just truths to read in a service. These are truths worthy of singing. And we need to keep that in mind in Christmas time, okay? And as you're going to see, you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer... Grandma getting run over by a reindeer cannot hold a candle to what we're going to see here, okay? This is good stuff. So if you're a new Christian, I want you to know that this is Christianity 101. This is the bedrock foundation of why Christians all over the world are celebrating Christmas. I talked to a friend in South Africa this last week. Guess what? They're celebrating Christmas in South Africa because this is the foundation of Christianity. And if you're new to Christianity, I hope that this will be a blessing to you. If you are a seasoned Christian, and this is like your 60th Christmas or something like that you're celebrating, uh, we come to this... Not because it's new, but because it's important. It's the same reason you celebrate your anniversary every year. I hope you celebrate your anniversary every year. Not because it's new, but because it's, it's special. It, it's a, there's nothing else in the world like it, and it is worthy of an annual look and a refocus and a, a, a recommitment and a celebration of what it means. So um, can we bring the screen up, Dave? Thank you. Um, so, so, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to call this five reasons Christ came that are worthy of singing about. Okay? Five reasons Christ came that are worth singing about as we look at our text together. So the first point we're going to go to is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a little bit topical, so you're going to need to keep your Bible handy or your iPad uh, uh, 
not going to sleep because we're going to work around in a couple of key texts that answer the question, why did Jesus come? Why did Christ come at Christmas? Okay. Now, the first truth, the, the, the answer to the question, why did Christ come, is we want to sing particularly about the mission of Christ. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. Okay, So we're going to sing about his mission. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. Now, if you're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in context, Paul has been describing the love of Christ controlling us and why he came and we live to please him in context. And then he, he boils it all down. It's, it's, as if, it's as if Paul like silences the rest of the room and he puts the spotlight on, on this particular verse saying, you want the bottom line of why Jesus came? Let me give it to you here. Here it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all these things are from God, here, here's the bottom line, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, look up for a second. There is no other verse in your Bible that so explains the mission of Christ than what we're about to read. Okay, this this is so incredible. Look what it says. Namely, here's the explanation that God was in Christ to do something right. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. There it is. Christ came to accomplish a mission. And that mission was to reconcile us to God. Now, if you were paying attention when we read Luke chapter 2 a moment ago, the angels show up, right? And, and, you know, the shepherds are scared. No, don't be afraid. It's good news, right? It's good news of great joy for all the people. And then we say, well, well what's the news? A uh, baby's born in Bethlehem. Why is that significant? Well, we find that out as they sing, right? And suddenly there was with the multitude, right, right, with the angel, a multitude. God filled the sky with a celestial choir to announce this good news. That, that's what Dr. Luke is telling us. And he, here's their message. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And we've heard that and sung that so many times, it goes right over our head. It's not peace on earth like the Hallmark cards say, where everybody's holding hands around the world with the flags. It's not peace on earth like that. It is peace on earth in the sense that God and sinners are reconciled. That's the peace that the angels are talking about. A peace among sinners on earth as they are reconciled to God through this Messiah that has just been born. Okay, That's the mission of God, is sending Jesus to accomplish reconciliation. Now, now what that means is, if Christmas is going to mean anything to you, you've got to start off with the right assumption. Because this is not good. Most people in the world yawn at this verse. They do not see, they don't, they don't erupt with joy like the shepherds did and like, and like the angels did. Why? Because this verse assumes that you recognize that you and I come into this world in need of reconciliation. You with me? The Bible says we come into this world not in a relationship with God, but actually alienated from Him. The Bible calls us, because of Adam's sin and all human beings after that, are broken in their relationship with God. We are rebels. We are enemies. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are children deserving of God's wrath and judgment. And there is nothing we can do to change that condition. 
And, and, you know, people go through life. They're trying to find happiness and peace and all sorts of stuff, relationships and experiences, all that. And you know and I know that that all doesn't work. It all is in vain. And so the Messiah comes. He's announced. And, and that's why joy comes because it's like here is the answer. God and sinners can be reconciled. Not by good works, not by giving to your church, not by, you know, going out and doing stuff for charity. Those are all great. But because Jesus comes and he is in he is in the work that God's going to do to reconcile sinners to God. The highest goal of the gospel is gaining God. That's what Christmas is all about. Listen to John Piper. Everything else in the gospel is meant to display God's glory and remove every obstacle in Him, such as His wrath, and in us, such as our rebellion, so that we can enjoy Him forever. Now, in a way that Piper can only write, I'm going I'm I'm to read this, okay? And this is as simple as bottom line as you can get. Okay, here's John Piper. Listen. God is the gospel. You see what he's because it's it's about getting God back. That's what this all this whole thing is about. Piper continues. That is, he is what makes the good news good. Nothing less can make the gospel good news. God is the final and highest gift that makes the good news good. And I want you to remember that Jesus came to accomplish the mission of God, and that was to reconcile sinners to God. And gaining God is the greatest gift that Christmas is all about. Do you see that? That's what this is all about. Now, now watch this. Watch this. <laughs> this is amazing. Watch this. Okay? Watch how Wesley puts this together in this song, right? You know the heart, Harold Anderson, glory to the... I'm going to try to do this without singing. You know how it is, trying to read a song that you like. And, and believe me, you don't want me singing up here. Preaching one thing, singing... Eh. Okay, so... Uh, but here it is, okay? Peace on earth and mercy mild. Here's the line. God and sinners... Reconciled. Do you see that? That's the mission. That, that's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. We sing and we glorify God. And that's what the angels are wound up about. It's what the shepherds are wound up. And it's about what you and I ought to be wound up about. Because God has announced through the coming of the Messiah that God and sinners can be reconciled. Now, he's not done. Look what it says. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. What, what's he saying there? It's okay, you can talk, really. We have no idea if that... You know, you, come on, come on, this is easy. Joyful, he's saying, nations, rise up with the angels and join their song. Get up off your couch and sing because this is worthy of singing about. That's what he's saying, right? And Christ is born in Bethlehem and, and with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. And then you, you notice they put the... The beginning line, they tag it to the end of the verse. That was one of the changes that was made uh, later on in the hymn. Okay, Jesus came to rescue and reconcile rebels. That's the bottom line. And if you are overwhelmed by sin, if you are struggling with guilt, if you are tripped up by shame, the good news of Christmas is that God has made a way for you and Him to be reconciled and all those things put away. Christmas is about the mission of Christ. You remember we celebrated the anniversary of the, of the moonwalk th- this last summer? Remember that? Uh, 1969, the, the, the men walking on the moon. Right? And some of you were into that. We all the, all the stuff we celebrated. You know, so, so think of 
think of the, the, the whole gospel like that. You know, there's the launch, there's the walking on the moon, and then there's the return to earth, right? And I want you to see as this, as this song unfolds, when Jesus comes to Bethlehem, that's like the launch. <laughs> the rocket takes off, right? The landing on the moon is the cross. And the return to earth is kind of like um, when we realize that we will be with God forever. So there's a sequencing that unfolds here. Anyway, okay, so that, that's how Wesley brings this out in the first point. Look at the second point here. We want to sing about the incarnation of Christ. Why did Christ come? He came to reveal God to us. We're looking at five reasons that Christ came at Christmas that are worthy of singing about and the second thing we're going to sing about is the incarnation. Jesus came to reveal God to us. And to see this, uh, flip over to John chapter 1. And um, you'll notice that John starts his gospel, his account of Jesus' life, very differently than Luke. Luke the historian is focusing on Jesus coming as, the, um, as a man, as the son of man. And so we see him, um, you know, with a lengthy treatment of Bethlehem and the angel's visits and all that. John notices, you notice in John, John doesn't start in Bethlehem, does he? In John chapter 1. Where does he start? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God John starts in eternity past. He says, the Messiah, the Son of God, is God. He's always been God. He's always been with God. And, and then at Christmas time, something happens. This God, this eternal God who's always been with the Father, something happens. And we'll pick it up in verse 14. And the Word, that's the name for the Son of God here, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John testified about Him and cried out saying, This was He of whom I said, He comes after me, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, watch this part. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, and that's kind of old language, It, it just means the one and only God, right? The one and only Son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father. Again, that's kind of archaic. It means at the Father's side, with the Father. He's, he's at the throne of the Father, right? The only begotten God, the only one and only God who is at the side of the Father. You ready? He, the Son, has explained Him, the Father. And what John is saying is, in Jesus, we get to see God in a way that we have never seen Him before. In fact, over 600 years before this happened on earth, Jesus' birth, the prophet Isaiah announced that a special child who would be born of a virgin would be a sign. Do you remember what his name was? Those of you in Isaiah better know this. So, what is that? Emmanuel, right? Im with new us L. God. God with us. Emmanuel. It's a compound word. It means God with us. This special child would literally be God with us. We see that fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1 when the angel comes to Joseph, explains why his betrothed is pregnant by the Holy Spirit and says, uh, you will call his name Jesus, he will save his people for his sins. And Matthew adds that this was to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said would happen, the virgin would be with child, right? So this comes to pass in the Christmas story. Now look back at the text. The word became flesh. 
That means that Jesus, the Son of God, always God, always existed as God, now added to his divine nature a human nature. He became a man without ceasing to be God. And it says here, he dwelt among us. Now, if you were a Jewish person reading this in the first century, and you read John's little comment there that he dwelt among us, you would drop your scroll. Scroll. It's hard to say. Scroll. Right? You'd drop it and you'd go, what is he talking about? Because that little word dwell looks back to the word tabernacle. Do you remember the tabernacle, that, that portable little you know, Israeli Coleman tent that they would carry around wherever God was leading them. And whenever he would set up camp, they would set it up and they had furniture and utensils. And that was the center point of worship. And then God would say, okay, it's time to move on. They would pack up the tent and they would move on. You remember that from the Old Testament, right? And do you remember what the tabernacle represented to the people of Israel in the Old Testament? What does it represent? That's right. It was the presence of God. It was God with them, right? You got it? And remember, the, the, the fire would come from heaven and, and all that, and the Shekinah glory would remind them that God is with them. Well, so when, when John in the first century says, God became flesh and he tabernacled among us. All that imagery of the Old Testament of God being with them and his presence and his activity and his, his proximity and his power and his word, all of that now comes not in a tent, but in a person. The Word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us. And so now God is with His people in a way more personal than anything they've ever seen in history. But it gets even better. Look at this. The Word became flesh, dwelled among us, and we saw what? What did they see? He saw His glory. They got to see the visible presence of God. Now, now, John reminds us, oh, by the way, no one has seen God at any time. And you know this because you know your Old Testament, right? You know that when Moses got caught up in the emotion of God's forgiveness, he said, Lord, I want to see you. And then he went, oh, no, what did I just say, right? God says, well, you, you can't see me, but I'll hide you in a rock. I'll put my hand over your eyes and I'll go in front of you and then I'll pull my hand and you can see the back of me, but you can't see my face, Right? Isaiah sees this great vision in Isaiah chapter 6 of God high and lifted up. And he, he sees that vision and what does he say? Hey, let's take a selfie. This would be great. I'll put it on a Christmas card. No, that's not what he says. He says, woe is me, I am undone. You know what that means, kids? It means I'm going to die. Because he just saw God. And no one sees God and lives. Right? See, that God is too holy. He's too pure. He's too righteous. He's, true, he's too other. We can't get too close to Him because He's God and we're sinful people. And yet John says, in Jesus we get to see God in a way that we have never seen Him before. We get to, and, and the, the biblical writers talk about this. They, they, they heard him with his ears. They, they saw him with their eyes. They, they touched him. They, they got to see and hear and watch God at a level they had never seen him before. And that's why John says no one has ever seen God at any time. But when Jesus shows up, God in human flesh, he, Jesus, explains him, the invisible God. And that is the culmination of revelation, right? That, that is God revealing himself to people in a way unmatched throughout human history. 
So we get to see God and experience Him and, and know Him. Guys, this, this reminds us that Christmas is about God coming near to you. God taking the initiative to reach out to you where you couldn't reach out to Him. We were too sinful. He comes to us. He makes Himself available to us. It's a reminder that He's personal. He's near. He's present with us. He is literally in Jesus, God with us, so that we could learn Him and emulate Him and, and, and know Him in this way. Christmas is about God coming near. Now watch how Wesley does this, okay? This is really, really cool. Christ by highest heaven adored. What's that? He's always been with the Father, right? He's always been God. He's always eternal. Christ, the everlasting Lord, right? He didn't have a beginning. He's eternal. What does He do? Late in time, behold, He comes. How? He's the offspring of a virgin's womb in fulfillment of Isaiah 7, just like the prophecy says, right? Now, now this is this is the line. This, this is the crescendo of the line here. I can almost... Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. What's he saying? Jesus comes, he's God in human flesh, and now you and I get to see God. We get to know God in a way we've never known him before. He's revealing himself to us, and, and that's what Wesley says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Now we see him. And what do we do? We hail the incarnate deity. We, we, we honor this God-man who comes to dwell among us to reveal God to us. And, and notice this. This was not plan B or C or some reluctant thing that God did. No, no. This was always the plan. Wesley taps into that. He was pleased as man with man to dwell. Do you know, kids, that Jesus was happy to leave heaven where it's way cooler than it is down here, to be with you, to reveal God to you, to help you to know God in a personal way, in a way that we needed, that we, we, we could never know God apart from this. And Jesus had a smile on his face as they teleported him to Bethlehem, or however it happened, I don't know how it happened, but whatever that, that theological magic that God worked to bring Jesus to the earth, he was pleased to do that. Notice the last part. Jesus, our what? Our Emmanuel. Our God with us. He personalizes it, right? And we need to sing about the incarnation because the incarnation is about Jesus coming to reveal God to us. All right? Number three. We've got a, a third thing we need to sing about. We need to sing about the work of Christ. Sing about the work of Christ. Jesus came to accomplish salvation. He came to accomplish salvation. To see this, if you're in John, just flip forward in the New Testament to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. No Christmas theology lesson would be complete without a look at Philippians chapter 2. Remember, Luke gives us the story in its fullest account. Paul in Philippians 2 gives us the the most robust theological look at the significance of Christmas. Okay, so those two passages really uh, aid us and help us here. Okay, so Christmas is about the mission of Jesus, right? We saw that. He sent him to reconcile sinners and God. Christmas is about the incarnation, God the Son taking on a human nature to come be with us, to reveal God to us. Thirdly, Christmas is about the work of Christ. Jesus came to accomplish salvation. Look at Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when the angel came to Joseph and said, don't worry about the pregnancy, this is a good thing, this is a a Holy Spirit-ordained work, Mary, Mary, here's what's going to happen. Um, do you remember? Do you remember? What, yeah, that's kind of funny. Mary, Mary. Um, do you remember what what what, she, what he what the angel said to Joseph about that? You shall name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus comes from an Old Testament word that means Yahweh saves or God saves. It underscores in his name why he came. He came to accomplish salvation. And that's what Christmas is all about. And in this classic verse, Paul pulls back the theological curtain and says, I want you to see what's going on behind the stage of Bethlehem. I want to show you what's going on in the, in the theological realm in the spiritual realm, in terms of all of this. So, so look back at the text. He says, have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. This whole section in Philippians is actually about trying to help people to get along, not being selfish, right? Considering others is more important. But know that there is no better motivation or model for how we ought to live than considering Jesus, who is the, son of God, the one and only Son of God who comes and humbles himself to take on humanity. So this text tells us that Jesus leaves the right hand of his Father. He empties himself, not of his deity, not of his attributes, but of his visible glory to take on the status of a humble human slave. We say, why would he do that? Look back at the text. It said, he he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was all about getting to the cross. For this reason, it says, uh, excuse me, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The, The logic here is this. Since Adam and Eve sinned, a curse has been on humanity, right? We understand that. We talked about being alienated from God and separated from Him and, and building up an account of judgment because of our sin. And death, right, physical death, is the marker that we are all fallen, right? You remember, God said to Adam and Eve, you will die because you have sinned. So Jesus comes, and here's the thing. If he's going to accomplish salvation, Jesus, the Son of God, has to do something that God never does and indeed can't do. What is it? He has to die. He has to die. So Jesus comes, and the logic of what what we're reading here is he comes, takes on a human nature, humbles himself, puts himself even as a slave's role so that he will be obedient to his Father's will even to the point of dying on the cross because that was necessary to accomplish our salvation. Jesus comes to reverse this curse on humanity, to be a second Adam, to become human, to live and die in order to defeat death and reverse this curse. So, so the point here to see, guys, 
is that Christmas is directly related to the cross, isn't it? Easter and Christmas are connected because that is the reason that he came, according to this verse. Okay, now now watch how Wesley unpacks this truth in his third verse here, okay? Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, right? He's the Prince that brings peace, according to Isaiah 9. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. That's a reference to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, the healing that comes through the Messiah. Now, just a footnote. Wesley's like a year and a half into his Christian walk when he wrote this. And you squeeze this psalm and you got Bible verses falling out all over the floor. You think, man, he's, he's a year and a half and he knows his Bible and he's putting all of this truth into this one song. Even, you know, prophets like Malachi that we're prone to look over in our Bible reading plan, right? He knows that the Messiah brings healing and redemption and salvation. And here's, here's the line that points directly to Philippians 2, right? Look at it. Mild he lays his glory by. That's the kenosis, right? That, that's he leaves his visible glory. He comes to the earth. He takes on a human nature to put himself under death. Why? Look at this. He was born that man no more may die. There it is, right? He, he's accomplishing salvation. By Christ dying, he allows us who are connected to him to never die eternally again. Salvation is accomplished. He's born to raise the sons of earth. He's born to give them second birth. And that's exactly what Paul states here in Philippians. Jesus came at Christmas to accomplish our salvation. And that is worth singing about. Let's look at a fourth thing. What's a fourth reason Jesus came that is worthy of singing about? And that's our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. Jesus came to unite us to himself. If you're in Philippians, just back up a few pages to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we'll read about the union with Christ. That that is a a reason that Jesus came. Look at this familiar verse with me in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You know this verse, right? Paul, Paul says, when I come to Christ, I, that old part of me, that old self, that, that sinful self identified with Adam is crucified with Jesus when I trust him. And that part of me dies. And now what does he say here? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have a new self. Christ is living in me and through me. Uh, Paul will write in Romans that we're united with Christ, not just in his death, but also in his resurrection. And so now my identity, my purpose, the the way I think about my life is Christ living in me. He says, the life I even now live, that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, Now, this is great. Do you know what Wesley was reading in the days reading up to his conversion? Any guesses? It wasn't Dr. Seuss. Uh, he was reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. Okay? He, he's reading Martin Luther. And you, and you guys know the story of Luther. Luther had a very similar background to Wesley. Wesley and, and the Wesley brothers and Whitfield, they're part of this holy club at Oxford. It's like this pious club where they did good works and they, they, they you know, 
did horrible things to their body to try to you know, remove sin and whatnot. And they, they were striving to be the best men they could be. But it was empty because it was Christless. They didn't know faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, right? And just like Luther. So, so a friend gives Wesley a copy of, of uh, Luther's Galatian commentary. The friend reads the pre- Actually, Wesley himself reads the preface. And in the context, Luther is talking about the fact that we don't do good things to earn salvation. We don't work for a relationship with God. Okay, listen to Luther, okay? Because this is, this is part of what happened in Wesley's conversion. Here's Luther. So then, have we nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? No, nothing at all, Luther says. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, knowing nothing, but rather in knowing and believing this only that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, and our salvation. Luther writes, Now God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness sin has no place. So now we may certainly think, although I still sin, I don't despair. Listen to this, guys. Because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. And in that righteousness, I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine and in my own righteousness. But I have another life. I have another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ, the Son of God, who knows no sin or death, but is eternal righteousness and eternal life. Can you hear the echo of Galatians in that? I have been crucified with Christ. I am gone. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And in this, this started the seeds, the beginning of Wesley's conversion as he understood a gospel of faith alone that unites us to Christ alone, which brings us his life and his forgiveness and his righteousness. Jesus came to bring life and identity and resources and purpose. Now, watch how Wesley plays this out, okay? This is a year after his conversion. He's thinking about Christmas time. I'm going to write a poem about it. Look at this. Come, desire of nations, come. That's a reference to Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. He knew his minor prophets really well. That's one of the titles for the Messiah. Look at this. Fix in us thy humble home. What's he saying there? What's he saying with that line? Yeah, come, indwell me, right? Make my heart your home. Fix in us thy humble home. Reside in us. Now, watch this. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the servant's head. What's that a reference to? Genesis 3, right? The the Protevangelium, the the first gospel given where uh, God promises that the seed of the woman would come, the Messiah, and crush the head of the serpent one day. And, and, and Wesley sees that as, I, as Christ comes, it's the seed of the woman bruising in us the serpent's head. Now, now watch this. Now display thy saving power, ruined nature, now restore. What's he saying there? He's saying Jesus came to reverse this curse, didn't he? He came to turn it over onto its head, joining us back to God. How's he going to do it? Look at the last lines. Now in mystic union joined. There's that union with Christ. Thine to ours and ours to thine. Isn't that beautiful? He's saying in the gospel, in, remember this is a Christmas hymn. 
We're, we're, we're singing this Christmas song asking Jesus to come and connect with us that we could be in Him and He could be in us and that would begin to reverse the curse and bruise the serpent's, the serpent's head and making our heart His humble home. You know, we know in this life we have remaining sin, don't we? Even as Christians. And that's hard and that's burdensome. We get frustrated. Listen listen to the hope of this. Listen to Luther again. Although I still sin, I don't despair because Christ lives who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. And Luther says this, In that righteousness I have no sin, I have no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life of mine and my own righteousness. But remember, I have another life. I have another righteousness above this life, which is Christ, the Son of God, who knows no sin or death, but is eternal righteousness and eternal life. And that is the hope of Christmas. Because Christ is coming to do that in us, to encourage us in that. He came to unite us to Himself. Let's look at one more. One more. One more benefit. Why did Jesus come? Why did He come at Christmas? He came to transform us into His image. We want to sing about the conformity to Christ because this is, this is worthy of our singing. Jesus came to transform us into His image. Back to 2 Corinthians where we started and look at this one last verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at this. Go ahead and turn back there. I want you to see it. Turn back there. It's interesting because uh, we're getting into the verses that we don't have typically in our version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But watch where he ends the song. Watch the conclusion, the final stanza. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, Paul writes, with unveiled face, he's talking about God coming near, right? Just like we were talking about earlier. We all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Interesting. In these verses, Paul is saying that in Christ, as we know Him more, as we behold Him more, as we see Him, what happens? We progressively grow to be transformed into his image, right? Now, this is interesting because, you know, when a baby is born, how many of you had a, a grandbaby or baby born recently? Okay, so a couple of you. You know how this works, right? You know, little little baby is born and we family and friends gather around and we say things like this, oh, he looks just like his father. Or, oh, she has her mother's eyes, right? And, and what we're doing is we're looking for elements in the child that reflect us, Right? But what we just learned here is that when Jesus, this special baby, comes, it's a reversal of that process. We are looking to Him to know what we ought to look like. We're desiring to be conformed into His image. And that's the, that's the joy of what's going on here. That Paul writes, as we know Jesus and see Him through the Word, as we meditate on His character, as we watch Him interact in the Gospels, as we rehearse His truth that guides and directs our steps, as we learn wisdom from the Bible that helps us to know His mind and His heart and His will, when we conform our desires and affections to that will, we will be transformed into His image. That the the promise of this verse is we become like Christ. We are transformed into His image as we know Him. 
Another famous hymn writer, John Newton, who you know wrote Amazing Grace, wrote this. To behold the glory and the love of Jesus is the only effectual way to be conformed to his image. In other words, there's no shortcut to spiritual maturity other than knowing Christ, seeing him, walking with him each day, and being transformed in his image. Uh, Newton was fond of saying that we become by beholding. And so the only way to spiritual maturity is to know Christ more, to spend time with Him, and to be transformed in His image. So, so, so put this all together now, okay? Why did Jesus come at Christmas? He came that we would know and see Him, right? He explains Him, John says, right? We see the incarnate God. We, we look and, and at Jesus. We see Him. We, 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 can, we can watch Him in the Gospels. He comes at Christmas so that we would know Him and see Him and thus be transformed into His image. And that brings the point of Christmas full circle. Are you following me on this? Okay, look up for a second. I lost you here. Creation, right? God makes people. Why? He was bored. He was lonely. Why did He make people? Genesis 1 tells us God made people to image Him to reflect His glory, to to emulate His character, right? And as you and I were like God and loving and, and, and serving and being kind, and we reflect that love that He has back to Him, that glorifies Him, doesn't it? That brings Him praise and honor. Well, what happens in Genesis 3? People go their own way, right? They, they rebel against law, against His law. We don't want you. We're going to make up our own way. And at that point, what happens to the image of God in people? It gets broken, right? It gets marred and distorted. And that's why you and I, in our fallen condition, we don't emulate God, right? We don't image Him. We don't reflect His glory and His character. And so what this uh, passage is telling us is that Jesus comes, why? To reconcile sinners to God, to accomplish salvation, to reveal God to us, to connect us with Christ. Why? So that then, that image that got marred and distorted and doesn't reflect God's character, what happens? It starts getting a renovation, doesn't it? So that little by little, as we walk with Him, as we know Him in this life, that image gets transformed so that you and I begin to reflect the character and glory of God to the final end. And, and you see this, that this is really, really profound, that, that this, well, I'll show it to you. Look at His hymn. This is not just a hymn that starts and stops in Bethlehem. It starts with the incarnation. It moves to the cross. And what does the hymn conclude in? Final glorification. We reflect God the way we were supposed to at the beginning of creation. God completely restores us into His image through Christ. And you've got to see this, guys. Christmas, remember, it's the beginning. It's the launch sequence. But that's not the whole message. Christmas brings Christ. He reveals Him. He lives. He dies in our place, accomplishes redemption, all to the end that we are joined back together with God and perfectly reflect His glory and His character for all of eternity. I just summed up the Bible for you in like two minutes. Okay, That's what the whole thing's about. Okay, Now, now watch how... It's brilliant how Wesley does this. Watch this. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface, right? We could say, erase it, blot it out. He's saying, Lord, this fallen part of me that identifies with sinful Adam, he says, put it away. I don't uh, erase that from my character. And instead, watch this, stamp thy image 
in its place. I want to be like you. I want to perfectly image you, Wesley says. Second Adam from above. Who's that? That's Christ. Reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain. He's saying, you know, we had you in the, in the original creation. We lost you. Now we want to regain you. Okay? Let us thee, though lost, regain the, the life, the inner man. We want to be changed inside, Wesley says, right? This, this transformation that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians. We want to be like Christ from the inside out. I love this. Oh, to all thyself in part. Lord, we want all of you formed in each believing heart. Do you see? Christmas is not just about Bethlehem. It's not just about the incarnation. It's the launch sequence that starts this whole plan of salvation that culminates in you and I perfectly reflecting our Creator's image for all of eternity and to the praise of His glory. And that's what, that's what Christmas is about. That's what this song is about. In fact, did, did you notice this? Um, this song is actually the gospel. It's the gospel in a song. It's, it, it, it's a Christmas song that shows us the gospel from, create, from incarnation to transformation. And that's why we need the last two verses. If you don't do the last two verses, you miss how the story ends. Mr. Wesley is reminding us that Christmas is about the gospel and that is worth singing about. Right? Okay, so I don't know what your state is as you come to the holidays. And as I talk to people, people are all over the map. I mean, there are people that I've met this last week that are horribly sad because they lost somebody, because they're lonely, because of a broken relationship, because of um, depression, and, and, and they're, they're struggling. There are other people that are anxious. You know why they're anxious? Because they're watching their credit card balance go up this month. Right. And they've got financial problems and they've got, you know, they're overworked and, and they're an uncertain future. And they don't they don't know what the, the year holds uh, ahead. Th- there are some people I've talked to. They're bored. They are bored with Christmas. They just almost can't wait to, to get through it. Right. And, and it's it's long lines at Walmart and it's extra traffic on 377. And Amazon doesn't deliver in two days like they're supposed to. It's four days because everybody's ordering at the same time. And, and they're just like, you know, I just want to get through this and, and, and go through it. My heart's not really in it. And there are people that are excited for the holidays, but they're excited, frankly, for all the wrong reasons. You know, they're, they're excited for parties. They're excited for presents and football games. And that's all well and good. Wherever you're at. I would suggest in light of what we've learned today that the solution, the solution is to sing Christmas songs that are dense with Christmas theology. Why? Because singing has a way of tuning our hearts into the frame of mind that we desperately need to be in as we come to Christmas, doesn't it? That's why God invented music. Music and singing has a way of doing things in our heart that nothing else can do. That's why it's essential for spiritual health, and that is what we all need this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder of why Jesus came and that these amazing gospel truths are not just worthy of repeating and meditating on, but they are worthy of our singing, of our praising, of our joining together Uh, even though we've done it 
a thousand times before. We're going to do it again because singing dense theology songs about the incarnation, about the cross, about final transformation are what tune our hearts into the frame of mind that you want us to be in. That uh, A state of mind, a form of mind, a frame of mind that is conformed even itself to the image of Christ. So Lord, we pray as we continue in our Christmas traditions and songs and familiar verses that this would be a key part of our spiritual health as we once again marvel at your great love for us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.